This is a Discovery Church podcast. Tune in to hear from our team as we invite you to find yourself in the bigger story. To find out more about what's going on in the life of the church, head to discoverychurch.com.au. Hi everyone, good to be here. I want to I want to talk to you today about something which I suspect, particularly over the last couple of years, I know it has for me, has made you want to give up the Christian faith altogether. It's, it's something which is associated with our passion, and I'll give you the title of this message now, just as a bit of a clue to, to see what I'm actually going to talk about. And, and the title of this message is Serving with Passion. Now, this next three weeks, we're going to be exploring what love in action and what that really looks like. And as Jesus called us to as one of the greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, all your soul. But also the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22. In other words, serving with passion involves something of the abundant overflow of Christ in our lives that he wants us to go and serve others because he's given us so much. So why wouldn't we want to give so much to others? And now I'm proud to be part of this church because for nearly 75 years now, we've had a whole, gen- whole generations of people who've been loving people in action, who've been serving others out of the abundance of the overflow of Christ's love in their hearts. They've been serving generously, particularly overseas. In fact, the first people that started the church as a Bible study nearly 75 years ago were, were a group of returning missionaries who wanted to find cheap accommodation in Mount Evelyn. We've got We've got mission in our DNA as a church. And so I'd encourage you, invite you to think about what does love in action mean for these, me this month, particularly as it means serving our overseas and our local mission partners. So my working definition for serving with passion, at least for the purposes of this mission, is this. Uh, serving with passion, the overflow of Christ's abundance in our life. So if I was to ask you that question, where have you sensed an overflow of Christ's abundance in your life? I wonder what you'd say. Now, for some of you, I suspect you have been seeing a a whole bunch of the overflow in your life. You've seen God's compassion. You've seen Jesus' mercy on your life. Maybe you've had a really great season in your business or your career. Maybe you've you've sensed the love of your family. You've had a real sense of bonding in your family over the last couple of years of COVID. But maybe there's some of you, and I suspect this will be true, who've had this sense of languishing since COVID came. You know, even after lockdowns, you've got this sense of inertia, this sense that something of the passion that you once had has been removed from you, and you just, you just don't know how to get it back. You, know, you, you certainly don't think it's passion, but it's certainly not a sense of overflow or abundance in your life. What's happened? Now, the good news is that you're, you're not alone. We're, we're currently in an era uh, called the Great Resignation. Uh, more people than ever are resigning from their jobs and just quitting. Uh, I saw a statistic from the ABS recently, and uh, it said that 10% of the workforce quit their jobs last year. That's the highest it's been for a long, long, long time. That's around 1.3 million people in Australia who, who just quit their jobs and changed to something else. We're also in an era of deconstruction when it comes to our faith, particularly for my millennial generation and for those who are a bit younger. We've got people now who are questioning their priorities in life since the outbreak of covid And it's affecting their faith as well. What is happening in our culture? 
you know, burnout is at, at the highest it's ever been. I, I saw a statistic just yesterday um, from this uh, HR company. They did a survey of 1,000 people who are working in Australia, and over 50% of those expressed um, symptoms of burnout. What's going on? What's, what's wrong? What's happening in our culture that makes people want to deconstruct their faith? Now, deconstruction doesn't necessarily lead to deconversion, but it should be a, an alarm bell for us to think, what is going on? What, what, is the, what is this sense of abundant overflow? Where is it? Now, I suspect there's a, a whole multitude of reasons why this is all happening in our culture right now. But I suspect one of the reasons for it is to do with this topic of passion, which I'm going to share about from Scripture shortly. There's a sense that this overflow of a Christ's abundance in our life has been lost, and we just, we just don't know how to get it back. So I'm going to share with you today from Acts chapter 6, and we're going to focus on the life of a person who served with passion, who served out of the abundant overflow of Christ in his life. And this is a guy called Stephen, and we're going to share from um, Acts chapter 6. We'll, we'll see some of the attributes of Stephen that are relevant for us today. You know, if, we, if we're called to serve with passion, what does that look like? And if we're called to not only serve with passion, but also to preserve that passion... If we're going to love God authentically, how do we preserve it? You know, how do we keep it in us so that the overflow, the sense of well-being we have, we sense of, the sense of the abundance of Christ can bless other people around us as, as Jesus called us to? So let's read from uh, Acts chapter 6 verse 8 and we'll read up to 7 verse 2. Now Stephen, a man of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his, the wisdom the Spirit had given him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law, They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom of Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this he replied, Brothers and fathers, Listen to me. I might just pray and then we'll get into this text. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're the true source of our spiritual passion. We thank you, Lord, that you, you, speak to our, you speak to our hearts through your word. And we just pray, Holy Spirit, will you just stir up something in us as we, as we reflect on the attributes of Stephen. And more importantly, we reflect on the attributes of you, Jesus. Stir us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's going on in this passage Stephen's a young man, he's been seized, and he's been accused of the similar things that Jesus had. He, he's been accused that Jesus was going to rip down the temple, and he's been accused that, he, uh, that the customs of Moses were going to be challenged, or going to be changed. Now, why is this a big deal for the Sanhedrin? Now, essentially, they're accusing him of blasphemy. Blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses, and blasphemy was a cause for death. You'd be put to death if you were accused of blasphemy. But importantly, the Sanhedrin was made up of a group of religious leaders uh, called, the, called the Sadducees. 
And now the Sadducees only believed in the law of Moses. The Pharisees, they believed in most of the Old Testament at that point, but the, the, the Sadducees, they only believed in the customs of Moses. So you imagine this guy coming in, accusing them of their whole way of life, that you're wrong, they can be like, what did you say? You can just imagine these 71 bearded men all looking at Stephen. I've got a picture of the, the Sanhedrin and what this might have looked like. Imagine being that person accused with these 71 bearded men all standing at you going, what did you say? You can just imagine the intimidation on their face as this poor Stephen standing there looking at him. Just How does Stephen respond in this moment? How does he reply to what must have been one of the most intimidating scenarios you can possibly imagine? Bear in mind, this is the same council, the same high priest Caiaphas who would have sentenced Jesus This is the same group of people who've got blood in their eyes as they look at him. Imagine the intimidation of this scene. So how does Stephen respond? We'll get to that. But I want to share three um, attributes of Stephen of what it means to serve with passion. And I'm going to call these the three eyes of serving with passion. And we'll reflect on what this means for us today as we go. So the first eye is Stephen's integrity. So verse 8, Stephen, a man, it says, a man full of God's grace. Now we see earlier in this chapter that Stephen has been selected as one of seven people to, to help with the food program for those that are experiencing hunger, people like orphans and widows at that time. Now there was a huge issue at, at, at that time because there were literally thousands of people who were starving. Now Stephen was selected as the first person to help with that program. He was the first person because they saw that he was a man filled with grace. Now, bear in mind, this is a time where you've got pestilence, you've got disease, like people died young. There was, there was no Medicare benefits. There was no uh, social security or safety network. And so this was a huge problem, and the apostles saw that. And so they asked the people, how can we overcome this? And they selected Stephen. Now, it also says in verse 8 here that Stephen was known to perform great wonders and signs. So what does Stephen do when he's asked? Does he say, you know what, I've got this pretty cool ministry going on over here. I'm seeing great signs and wonders. You know, maybe you should ask someone else to do this. And he goes, no, that's not how he responds. He graciously accepts with humility the role that he's been asked to do. Serving with passion means serving with integrity and putting our own agenda aside and serving others with the graciousness that we know that we've been given by God. So some questions for us. What are some of the needs you're seeing in your community right now? And how might God be inviting you to say yes to serve these needs? Interestingly, the word grace here uh, in the Greek actually is the word charis, which means spiritual charm or winsomeness. Isn't that a lovely word, winsome? When's the last time you used that in a sentence? Maybe next time you're at Woolies and the person at the checkout asks you, oh, hey, how are you doing today? Oh, you know, I'm just, just feeling winsome today. <laughs> just see what they say, you know. This, the grace of God had affected Stephen so much, it impacted him so much that the overflow would made him a gracious person. Notice in uh, chapter 7, verse 2, he he addresses the Sanhedrin, people who are going to murder him, as brothers and fathers. 
Here's a guy who's about to be killed by them, and he's speaking to them like they're members of his family. Such grace, such spiritual, such winsomeness. So some more questions for us. How have I celebrated the abundance of God's grace in my life lately? How gracious have I been towards those who have wronged me lately? Stephen shows us that serving with passion takes integrity. It takes a winsomeness. But it also shows us that serving with passion isn't phased by hostility. It isn't phased by the intimidation that can come from the circumstances we find ourselves in. It isn't intimidated by disruptions. I, um, I went to Food Start recently, which is our, our local outreach to people experiencing homelessness in, in the Lilydale area. It kind of runs under Discovery Community Care, our local mission arm. And uh, I decided to join the Discovery Bible Study that one of our members had set up, just to sort of join these, this group of people that were there, just to see how it's going. And it was run by one of our members there. I, I don't want to embarrass him, but just for the sake of this story, let's just call him Gary. <laughs> G- Gary Parsons. And one of the things I just loved about Gary, that you know, in the midst of this chaos, you've got food coming, you've got noises going on, lots of interruptions. He faithfully does this exegesis of the book of Exodus in this passage, which can only be described as winsomeness. You know, he was just unflappable. He just unfazed by all the disruptions, and people keep coming back. People keep seeing the grace of God in him because it's not really about the Bible study. It's because they see something different about him. They see the grace of God pouring out of him because out of his love of Christ, he wants to love the people around him. And I know there are people here today who serve through Discovery Community Care, who serve in Food Shop, who serve through our coach program. And I just want to say on behalf of the neighborhood team, I can see the grace of God pouring out of you in the way that you serve. And I just want to commend you guys all for that. You're doing an amazing job. And it's because you're serving with passion that you're doing that. So thank you. I, I really honestly do appreciate what you're doing. So how do we develop this sense of graciousness towards others if you've been struggling with this lately? How do we, how do we serve with passion in a way that shows grace that we've been shown by God? I think the answer to this is found in the second eye, which is intentionality. In verse 15, it says, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now, why did Luke feel compelled to add this comment about Stephen's face looking like the face of an angel? Was it because his face was all like scrunched up like one of those little cherubim on top of the buildings? That's probably how my face would have looked if I'd been in that situation. No, it wasn't that. What often happens when... You see an angel, in, when, when someone sees an angel in scripture, what's normally the first reaction? Fear, fear, that was it. So normally it's like, whoa, what's going on here? Now, what, what normally happens as well when, what, what, what does an angel look like when you see it in scripture? Think of, uh, think of uh, Jesus at the tomb when the angels rolled away the stone. It's bright, yeah, it's bright. It's, it's like lightning it was described in, in Matthew 28. It's, it's, it's astonishing. It's, it's something intense. And this is, what, this is what Luke's trying to say. The author of Acts is trying to say there was something bright and intense on Stephen's face in this moment. Um, now, it's, clear, it's not really clear what Stephen's background is or, or what his education was, his credentials. But what is clear from Scripture is that he has a very intentional and close relationship 
with not only Jesus, but with the ministry of the Holy Spirit as well. Look at verse 8. Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs. In verse 10, the religious leaders could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit had given him to spoke. We see this integration of Stephen's integrity with wisdom and power of the Spirit. To the point where people couldn't argue with him anymore. People couldn't even like couldn't even challenge him because what he was saying was just so filled with a sense of grace and wisdom from God that it was just hard to counter. How did he do this? I believe Stephen had an attentiveness to God. He had an attentiveness to what Jesus was asking him to do. Now you might be thinking, maybe he was just a high capacity leader. Maybe he, um, you know, maybe he just had this brief anointing of the Spirit, but I don't think it was that. I think he had a, an intentional relationship with Jesus. And, and the clue for us from Luke is that he talks about how, he gives us a clue because of this face of like an angel. It's actually referring to someone else in Old Testament scripture who also had a face like an angel that was radiant when he came down after speaking to God. And this is Moses in Exodus 34. Now, Moses' communion with God in Exodus 34 is probably one of the most intimate moments between a man and God that you'll find in Scripture. Now, Moses has seen amazing things happen. He's seen some astonishing acts of God. And he turns to God with this passionate plea to see the glory of God. He asks to see the glory of God. Now, how does God respond? He goes, all right. I'm going to show you some amazing glory right now, but you're not going to be able to see it face to face. You're only going to be able to see my back. In fact, I'm going to have to hide you in a cleft of a rock while I go past. And when I go past, watch and you'll see some amazing glory. Let's, let's read it from Exodus 34, 6 to 7. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And then verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. So Moses was not only exposed to the radiance of God, but he was exposed to the attributes of God. He was exposed to God's person. Because Moses had seen the promises of God go before him. He'd been promised God's presence with the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. He'd seen the power of God opening up the Red Sea But now he wanted to see the person of God. He wanted to see God for who he really was. He wanted to see his compassion, his love, and his mercy. And God declared that over him. I wonder what that voice sounded like, you know, just that pouring out. And when he came down off that hill, his face was radiant, just like it was for Stephen. I think Stephen had a radiant moment with God just in the build-up to this. Now, I remember when I was at um, Soul Survivor, a big Christian conference of youth. I wasn't a Christian at this time. I was 19 years old. I remember looking at people and thinking, what's different about you? Like, why are you so happy? Like, there was something in their face that just looked different. And it was only when I became a Christian that I realized it was just the joy of their relationship to Christ radiating out of their face. It was, it was, I could see it. It, it, looked, it made me curious as someone who wanted to find out more about Christianity uh, interestingly, when I first saw this connection between Stephen and Moses, you know what my first reaction was? I felt shame. I felt, I felt, I felt like the Pharisee. I felt like the Sadducees in this. Like I was only, as if I was only seeking after the things of God rather than God himself. 
you know, at times, especially during COVID lockdowns, I'd, I'd sensed that I'd, I'd lost a sense of my passion. I was like, God, I, I need your presence. I need your power. I need you to come back into my life powerfully again. But if I'm honest, really, I probably didn't ask for God's person in particular. I didn't ask just for him. I didn't ask just to be close to him. I was asking for the things of God rather than for God himself. I am... Um, I've got twin boys, they're four years old now, and uh, Archie, one of them, he was up a bit earlier than normal, and, um, and I was up, and so I just, me and him, we just did a puzzle together on the, on the carpet in the lounge, we just, he just sat on me, and we just, we just did this puzzle together, and it was great. I had breakfast, went to work, came back later, and I just noticed Archie, Archie was just following me around, like around the house, you know, I was just trying to help Belle with dinner, and I was like, what's going, what's going on with Archie? And Belle said, it's because you connected with him this morning, he's been talking about you all day, and he's been waiting for you to come home. And because you had that time of connection with him, he just wants to be close to you now. I just thought, oh gosh, like, how much do I want that symbol of him coming to me to be about my relationship with Christ? I, you know, I, of course, if he, wanted a, if he wanted something from me, if he wanted a hug, I'd give it to him. If he, if he was hungry, I'd feed him. But I, I still love him. I want him to love him. I want him to love me just for me. I don't want him to feel like he has to come to me whenever he's got something to need and run off. You know, there'd be something a bit like, you know, a bit off about that, right? And of course, like, God is so gracious to us because as I was thinking this moment, as I was thinking about the shame I felt, it was immediately replaced with a sense of God's grace because it was almost as if God said to me, like, look, Phil, my love for you has never changed, but it sounds like yours for me has and God, I just realized in that moment, God is so gracious with us when we realize the need to change the frequency in order to meet him more fully. So some questions for us. When was the last time I asked to see the glory of God, just him, and not ask for something? When was the last time I sensed an abundance of radiance on me after being with Jesus? I suspect Stephen was known for his intimate and intentional relationship with God. There was an abundance of overflow of this grace in his life that had poured out into the people around him. And the people selected him because he was a man of integrity. He was a man of intentionality in his relationship with God. He served with passion and it was evident. He was the man for this job and he said yes to it. Now, the good news for us is that spiritual passion is not something we have to muster up. This isn't in our own strength anymore. Uh, Hebrews 12, 29 says, uh, Our God is a consuming fire. As Benny Kumar said a few weeks ago, like, if you're cold, if, you're, if your soul feels all shriveled up and, and, and just empty, draw close to God. Get, get warm to the fire. You know, your hands are cold. Get close to the fire. God is the, the, God is the true source of our spiritual passion. It's not something we have to muster up. You can give it a go, but trust me, I've tried it, and you'll fail. It's, it's not in our own strength that we do this. And Stephen had learned this secret. Now, we've seen how Stephen serves with integrity. We see how he serves with intentionality. We're going to look at the final I, which is how he serves with impact, which is essentially the overflow of the first two. So let's come back to the, to the scripture. What's happened here? He's, he's been accused of changing the law of Moses and that, he'll, he's going to, and that Jesus is going to bring down the temple. Now, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives his response and we're not going to have time to go into today because it's, it's, it's 53, uh, 52 or 53 uh, verses long. 
Uh, but I'm going to give you an overview because I think there's something in what he says which is really powerful for us today and we can take some learnings from this as well. <clears throat> so in response to the temple charge, he starts in chapter 7 by, by sharing how the God of glory appeared to Abraham and led him out the, out the land of the Chaldeans. He then moves on to verse 9 where he talks about the 12, the 12 patriarchs and particularly Joseph and how uh, God spoke to Joseph through dreams and visions. He then uh, goes to Moses in verse 20 where he, he, t- he turns to Moses talking about how God speaks to him through the burning bush. And then he speaks to him on the top of Mount Sinai where he comes down with the Ten Commandments. He then turns to David in verse 45 and how David had a desire to build the temple, but that was handed over to Solomon and that was instructed by God. The common theme through all of this is that God doesn't need a temple in order to share his intentions, in order to speak to his people. Now notice in verse 48, and and we'll read this together, how he finishes. The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. In other words, how can God's dwelling place be the temple when it says clearly here, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool? God is living and active. He doesn't dwell in a specific place. Yet here you are, Mr. Sanhedrin, so fixated on this building that you've forgotten that God speaks to us uniquely and differently every day. Now, to address his accusers of changing the customs of Moses, he goes into a bit more detail from Old Testament scripture just to challenge their thinking a bit more. Now, if Moses really is challenging the customs of Moses, he's certainly not the first person to do it. In fact, he says... Isn't it obvious the fact that there's been customs handed down from Moses to the Israelites which they chose to ignore? For example, wasn't it a tabernacle that was first formed? This was where God's dwelling place was going to be and there was reams of instructions on how to make that in Exodus. Yet here we are in a temple. Is that not funny how that happened? Why was that not passed on? He didn't say that specifically but he alludes to that definitely. Now secondly, although Moses is clearly selected by God as the leader, and and people have seen some amazing stuff happen through him, the power of God working through him, what happens when he comes down with the Ten Commandments, the customs of Moses, that he's been given by God? What do the people do? They reject it. They reject the very thing that the Sanhedrin are holding dear to right now. They reject it saying that, no, you you took your time, you're too long, we're now worshipping something else, which is this golden calf over here. You're no good. And, and what happens is that there's been a pattern of this type of behavior that continues on for generations after this. All the, all the prophets after there are rejected by the people of Israel. Now, worst of all, the people rejected Jesus. The Sanhedrin had rejected Jesus. Jesus came with an offer of forgiveness, of repentance, that was leading to redemption. And they refused refused to follow it. So what does does, uh, Stephen do in response to this? Because what's happened is that people, the the Sanhedrin have chosen to follow the gifts rather than the giver. They've chosen to follow the things of God rather than God himself. And so listen to how Stephen finishes off uh, from verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. 
Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And then into chapter 8, and Saul approved of their killing of him. Some quick observations. Saul, who later became Paul, wrote a good portion of the New Testament letters. I wonder what he was thinking when this was happening. I wonder how he was impacted by this moment. I suspect there was a passion that he saw in Stephen and an impact of that passion which had an impact on him that enabled him to serve the mission of God powerfully across the Roman Empire. Now also bear in mind, at this moment when Stephen is killed, it spreads the gospel exponentially. Just as Jesus declared in Acts chapter 2, the gospel was to go out to Judea and Samaria. And that's exactly what happened. People left behind their families and their possessions as Christians because they were being persecuted, but they took with them the gospel message. What this demonstrates for us is that serving with passion and with impact is something that there's a cost involved, absolutely. But where's the sacrifice? A sacrifice would imply giving up something of greater worth, but for lesser worth. But this didn't happen because the message of Jesus got out across the whole of that known world at that time. And it still continues to go out today. Stephen reminds us that the gospel cannot be contained or squashed. In fact, when it, when it is, it's often when it spreads the quickest. So Stephen's example invites us to serve with passion by stepping into this tension. One of the questions I want to share is, when do you feel most fearful to share your faith? You know, maybe it's that neighbor that you've been meaning to have a chat with about God, or that family member who's been deliberately antagonistic about faith. Stephen invites us to step into that tension, recognizing that the impact we may have could be exponential. Yes, there could be a cost involved. It might compromise this relationship. But serving with passion means stepping into that tension with boldness, like Stephen did. Maybe if the band could come up and join me now. Just this last thought I have. Stephen has this vision in this passage, which I just want to finish with, which I think is remarkable, and it's worth paying attention to. Now, often when we see Jesus, the resurrected Jesus in Scripture, we see him sitting at the right hand of God. It's this position of honor that he's, he's succeeded in what he came to do and the Holy Spirit's work is now continuing. But that's not what Stephen sees here. I'll just give you an example of what, it, what Jesus sitting in Hebrews 12. It says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. But in this passage, in verse 55, we see a different Jesus here. Let's just read this together. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Why is that significant? 
One of my favorite memories of my granddad, um, he, he lost a leg uh, to gangrene in World War II. That wasn't my favorite memory, but my... F- <laughs> so. Just love that leg, you know. But one of the things he used to do whenever a woman used to come into the room, he used to stand up, even though it would have been uncomfortable for him because he'd had an amputation below the knee. Similarly, when you go into a court of law and, and the judge comes in, you hear the court official say, all rise. It's a sign of honor and respect to the system of justice that we operate under. It's a sign of honor to the judge. But we see here in this passage Jesus is standing up as if interceding for Stephen, as if to honor him, as if to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have served me with integrity. You have served me with intentionality. And your impact is going to have an impact for generations, for millions of peoples, for years to come. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You're coming home. You're coming home to me. It's astonishing for him to declare and see that. What an honor, what an honor to have that moment. Serving with passion, of course there's a cost involved. But it's not a sacrifice. And the good news for us is that when we say yes to Jesus, he stands to honor us as well so why don't we why don't we all stand now I bet when you get to heaven and you ask Stephen like was it worth it and you'd be like yes of course it was worth it I got to I got to see the gospel spread across this whole community that I knew and across Judea and across the known world and I got to be here with Jesus. You know, where's the sacrifice? Love in action means serving with passion. But this only comes with an intentional relationship with God, the, the one who provides that overflow of abundance in our life. It allows us to live a life of integrity and with impact. And if we're disconnected from that sense of passion, that sense of passion only he can provide, We'll just struggle in life. I know this. I know I've tried it and it just hasn't worked out. But if your soul feels cold and if it feels like it's disconnected from God, get close to that consuming fire of God again and he'll warm you up. He's a gracious, merciful, compassionate God who wants to pour out his love through you so that you can serve in love and action for other people. So why don't we just bow our heads in a time of prayer. The reality is we're all, we're all guilty. We're all guilty of the same accusations that was thrown at the Sadducees. We, we find comfort in our, in our everyday things. We, we find security in our jobs or in the, the work we do or the money that we have and we even find approval from the people around us rather than from God. And, and when those systems are disrupted, it can compromise our connection with God. It can compromise the abundant overflow of Christ in our lives. And, and we feel lost. We feel disrupted. It's true for everyone here today. 
We need to come back to God and be connected to the true source of our passion, the true source of overflow in our lives. Maybe you've, you've been through some really tough circumstances lately. You've, you've had a marriage breakdown. You've lost, you've lost a loved one. You've, you've lost your job. Something's happened and it's just disrupted you're in a compass and, you, and you're, you're searching for that sense of connection with God again. You're, you're longing to be overflowing of that abundance of Christ again. Like I said, the good news is when we say yes to Jesus, he stands to honor us as well and he abundantly wants to pour out that love for us. So I want to pray for two groups of people here today. The first I want to pray for are those who feel like they've had their their passion ripped away from them. Maybe you've said yes to Jesus many times before, but he's just inviting you to go a little deeper today. He wants you to draw close to him, and the promise is that he'll draw close to you. There's another group of people here who've maybe never said yes to Jesus before. You've, you've been searching for that sense of passion, for that sense of abundance in your life. You've been searching for that inner joy, that inner peace that can only come through a connection with Christ and you've just come here today and just you're wondering what it is and you've, you've sensed something stirring in your heart. You want to say yes, but you just don't know what the implications are going to be. I'm, well, I, I'm here to say today that it's, it's worth it. There's no sacrifice. There's, there's, there's a cost, yes, but the, the rewards are so much more. So Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you're the true source of our spiritual passion. You've poured out your love so generously and so graciously. And we just ask to see your person right now. We ask to see your glory. We ask to see your radiance on us so that we can love others who desperately need your love around us as well. We're sorry for the way that we've been distracted in our lives by the things around us that are just not of you or are just a distraction from our relationship to you. And there's nothing wrong with asking for your presence. There's nothing wrong with asking for your power, Lord. But we just want your person right now. We want to sense your mercy and your love in new ways. For those of us here today who have lost a sense of connection, we pray, Lord, for a restoration to come, for a newness in their relationship with you, for a fire and a spiritual passion to come, And for those, Lord, here who've never said yes to you, who've never said yes to your Holy Spirit, to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I just pray, Lord, for the wonder and the satisfaction that can only come from growing to know you, Jesus. I pray for that wonder and satisfaction to just be poured out on those who want to say yes to you today. So come, Holy Spirit, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Now, if that's you and you said yes to Jesus, I would love to pray with you after the service. But in the meantime, let's, let's just worship God. Thanks for joining us on this Discovery Church podcast. Now go and find yourself in the bigger story.